Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. I'm Joyce Kaufman, and of course, I have a lot to say. This has been... Well, it's been months of hell, but it's certainly been a week of hell for the former President Donald Trump, because this week he was indicted for the second time in two months on alleged crimes related to the handling of classified documents. He faces up to 100 years in prison. I want you to think about that for a minute. Joe Biden's Department of Justice has indicted the front-running candidate from the opposite party who's leading in the polls in a head-to-head match, in a matchup with Biden. Trump was indicted for possessing classified documents in his home, the exact same thing that Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Mike Pence were discovered doing, but none of them have been indicted. Why is that? In April, Donald Trump was indicted for paying Stormy Daniels $130,000 to keep quiet about an extramarital affair. But Bill Clinton, who paid $750,000 to Paula Jones in a sexual harassment settlement, was never indicted of anything, even though he lied to a federal grand jury. In 2019, Trump was impeached for quid pro quo in Ukraine, just for asking about Hunter Biden's illegal business dealings in the Ukraine. But Joe Biden, who leveraged a billion dollars of military aid to the Ukraine to get the Ukrainian president to fire the prosecutor investigating his son's illegal business dealings, has never been impeached. In a joint statement, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries called for Trump's indictment to play out, quote, without any outside political or ideological interference. So in keeping with that thought, Jack Smith, the prosecutor who was in charge of the Lois Lerner IRS investigation, where she literally weaponized the IRS against Barack Obama's political opponents and was let off the hook by the very same Smith. Now he's been appointed to oversee Trump's prosecution. So uh, you can rest assured that there will be no political, no ideological interference by Jack Smith, even though he has already proven that he's only interested in acting in a politically partisan manner. Senator Schumer and Congressman Jeffries also stated, with a straight face no less, that no one is above the law, which is comically false. Joe Biden is above the law. Hunter Biden is above the law. Hillary Clinton is above the law. Bill Clinton is above the law. Barack Obama is above the law. Jim Comey, James Clapper, John Brennan, 
Peter Strzok and Lisa Page are all above the law. If you're a Democrat, you're above the law. If you're a Republican, you will be held to the most extreme interpretations of the law. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis condemned Trump's indictment by writing, the weaponization of federal law enforcement represents a mortal threat to a free society. We have for years witnessed an uneven application of the law depending on political affiliation. Why so zealous in pursuing Trump, yet so passive about Hillary or Hunter? Senator Ted Cruz characterized Trump's indictment as the culmination of what Merrick Garland has been pushing for since he became the attorney general. And that's the weaponization of our Department of Justice against enemies of the Biden administration and the Democrat Party. It will do enormous damage, said Senator Cruz, to the rule of law and have a lasting impact. Our rule of law has already been compromised. We already have a multi-tiered justice system. Why have hundreds of Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th been thrown in jail for years, while far-left activists who stormed the Capitol in Washington, D.C. in 2018, trying to interfere with Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, they got off with a fine. Why did the far-left activists who stormed the capitals of Milwaukee in 2011, the Portland Federal Courthouse in 2020, the Capitol in Austin in 2023, and the Capitol in Nashville this year get off with barely a slap on the wrist while grandmothers who walked around the Capitol Rotunda for five minutes were thrown in jail. Trump's indictment is just further proof that the 2020 election was in fact stolen and the Democrats' plan to steal the 2024 election. The list of the Democrats interfering with our elections is staggeringly long. In 2020, 51 former intelligence officers signed a document that falsely states that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. That's election interference. The false Russian collusion investigation was an attempt to overturn the results of the 2016 election. The first impeachment in the fall of 2019 was election interference. The second impeachment, which attempted to disqualify Donald Trump from ever running for president again, was election interference. The January 6th committee, whose goal was to prevent Donald Trump from ever running for president again, was election interference. The indictments in New York City are election interference. This current indictment is definitely election interference. If they will go to these lengths to interfere with an election, they will easily exploit mail-in ballots and no voter ID to stuff the ballot boxes because ethically, they're the same thing. They are both illegal and they both create a fraudulent election result. When those in power arrest their political opponents, we are no longer a constitutional republic. We have crossed the Rubicon into a banana republic, a totalitarian state, or full-blown fascism. Take your pick. But none of this should surprise anyone. We have witnessed the fascism right in front of our eyes for the last three years. Government-imposed lockdowns, governments shutting down schools and churches and businesses, 
government mandating masks and vaccines, government telling citizens with whom they're allowed to celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving, government preventing family members from going to loved ones' funerals, government officials and intelligence agencies working with social media to silence political voices of their opposition. Those were all Democrat policies to control and dictate the lives of American citizens. The Democrats love to call Republicans and conservatives fascists, but when you really look at both parties and their behaviors, there's only one fascist party in America. It's the Democrats. At times, the Democrats will be so bold and arrogant to admit to their fascism in public. In a video that's often suppressed on the internet, Former President of the United States and current leader, ostensibly, of the Democrat Party, Barack Obama said, quote, As for the international order that we have worked for generations to build, ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. Order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign, end quote. And that is what this is all about. The Democrats do not care about preserving the American system of government and elections. They want a totalitarian takeover of America, the individuals surrendering their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. So weaponizing the intelligence agencies and rigging elections not only achieves those aims, but are aligned with their political ideology. Almost a century ago, H.L. Mencken, the famed American journalist, he was a satirist and a scholar and essayist, he said, quote, the men the American people admire most extravagantly are the most daring liars. The men they detest most violently are those who try to tell them the truth. The question is, which ones are the liars and which ones are the truth tellers? Is Barack Obama the liar or the truth teller? Is Joe Biden the liar or the truth teller? Is Donald Trump the liar or the truth teller? Does the deep state exist or doesn't it? Remember, the politicians who want to overtax you, overregulate you, take your constitutional rights from you, and tell you it's for your own good, they are the liars. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It's amazing how the left pronounces a word with emphasis or volume and expects it to become a, a criminal indictment. I mean, let's start with an easy one. Eric Adams, that outstanding mayor of New York City, has filed a lawsuit against neighboring state counties, charging them with, hold your breath, xenophobic bigotry for refusing to accept bust-in illegal aliens. Now, there's a term you don't hear much xenophobic bigotry. But in my entire uh, public career on the air, spanning more than 30 years, I have never heard those two words put together. So it must be something horrible. But when you look at the expression, you have to ask, where's the beef? I mean, 
What's wrong with being xenophobic? Having or showing a dislike of or prejudice against people from other countries. Okay, I'll confess to having a prejudice against people from any other country who enter my country illegally. That is, if they sneak across the border, walk boldly across, or otherwise enter my country without first making a proper application, I don't like them. I hold the same attitude towards anyone who tries to enter my apartment without first asking permission. Boundaries mean something, or at least they used to. Most countries around the world feel that way about their boundaries, no entrance without proper application. So xenophobic bigotry doesn't sound, to me at least, like such a big deal. But not so, Mr. Adams. Next, we have our beloved president talking about the attitudes toward that newly protected class of citizens called trans. How large a group do we have here? Nobody knows, but the best guess is somewhere around less than 1% of the population. Breitbart News reported that Biden promised to champion new rights for the often contradictory demographic of varied LGBT people, saying, and here I'm quoting Breitbart, quoting Biden, our fight is far, far from over because we have some hysterical and I would argue prejudiced people who are engaged in all what you see what's going on around the country. You got to be puzzled by that statement. I am. For one thing, I consider myself a reasonably rational, reasonably educated person. Yes, I hold prejudices and preconceived opinions not based on actual experience. For example, I have since long since realized that my actual experience, for example, first-hand observations or actions, is certainly limited geographically. I've traveled some in my life, but there are many places I have never set foot. So my understanding of such places that I've never set foot in is based on hearsay, on reports from others who have actually been there and done that. I have no desire to visit many such places, partly because of the cost, partly because of the distance, and partly because of what I have heard and read about such places. There are foods I have tried and experiences I have had, which, to my mind, do not bear repeating. These attitudes are prejudices, and I do not apologize for holding those prejudices. I will not eat octopus. And yes, there are people I am not interested in meeting, talking with, or even being in their presence. More prejudices. You get the idea? Being prejudiced about something is not necessarily a bad thing. And I resent someone trying to choose for me what it is that should disturb me. But the left has decided what it is that should disturb us how we should think and reason and act. Being white, being Republican, being a Trump supporter, being a climate denier, having objections to property crimes, such as shoplifting and trespassing and burning of cars and breaking of windows, all are condemned by the left as being systemic terrorists, white supremacists, and existential threats to democracy. Wow, I qualify on all counts. How about you? Yeah, and that's not all I want to talk about because in the Epic Times, uh, Jan Jekyllick wrote a great piece. Um, this was actually taken from a speech that he had given. 
And he said that um, he was going to start talking, and this is a COVID piece, about the First Amendment. Because the First Amendment reads, just in case the left has made you forget what it reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The First Amendment emerged in the aftermath of the American Revolution when the framers of the Constitution, who of course now we're not supposed to admire, sought to establish a constitutional order that would guard against the oppressive rule they had just fought against. The framers understood that broad free speech rights meant that untruth could circulate along with truth, but they recognized that this was a small price to pay in fostering a vibrant and a free society and that the benefits of protecting all speech, even that which is false or offensive, outweighed the risks of stifling ideas. To this day, there is nothing like the First Amendment anywhere in the world. Take the European Convention on Human Rights, for instance. It states that, quote, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, but it also states that the exercise of these freedoms, since it carries with its duties and responsibilities, may be subject to such formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of national security for the protection of health or morals, and so on and so on. So what is free speech without, with restrictions? It's censorship. Any restriction of free speech is censorship. The word censor comes from the Latin word for the judges in ancient Rome who supervised public morality. And that is really the crux of this. It's almost always an issue of morality or power when someone gives themselves the right to determine what someone else can and cannot say. Without digressing too much into the legal minutiae, the essence of free speech in the United States is that you can say whatever you like short of shouting fire in a crowded theater and causing a panic. The exact words used by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in Schenck versus United States back in 1919 were, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The second part of that quote is often overlooked, causing a panic. Thus, Saying things which turn out not to be true is okay unless its effects are so immediate as to cause a panic. Applying this principle to COVID public health measures, it's difficult to see what one could say that would be so immediate as to cause a panic. Saying something on Facebook is not capable of causing a panic. The immediacy of the crowded cinema is missing. There's time to reflect and to read and to make an informed choice. In other words, whatever people say about things like masks or vaccines cannot be in breach of the First Amendment. And yet all of that went out the window when COVID arrived. In fact, the origin of systematic government censorship efforts predates COVID. Those efforts began in 2017, driven in large part by a dislike of Donald Trump among the ruling elites. 
In that sense, the beginnings of the government's censorship efforts are really rooted in efforts to silence Trump and his MAGA movement. There are many examples of this that have been documented by the Twitter files that journalist Matt Taibbi over the past few months since Elon Musk opened Twitter's internal emails late last year. As you'll see, understanding pre-COVID censorship efforts is very important for understanding COVID censorship. The two are directly connected. Here's two examples. First, there was a systematic effort to silence Trump supporters that started in 2017 and was driven by quasi-government forces. Under this effort, entire censorship lists were drawn up to have people thrown off Twitter under the pretense that they were Russian disinformation agents, when in actual fact, the people that were targeted were almost exclusively ordinary Americans who were simply sharing their views about this and that, usually people on Trump's side of the political spectrum. One of the censorship projects was called Hamilton 68. Its purpose was to supposedly track Russian propaganda efforts on Twitter. It was created in 2017 under the auspices of the German Marshall Fund. The German Marshall Fund is a group that was set up by the German government as a thank you to America for the original post-World War II Marshall Plan. So in a nutshell, the German government's initiative to foster better relations with America was turned into an initiative to censor Americans. Twitter Files author Matt Taibbi found that Hamilton 68 had flagged 644 so-called Russian propaganda accounts for removal by Twitter. But when Matt looked at the list of names Hamilton 68 gave Twitter, he found that almost every single one of these accounts belonged to an ordinary America. People like the editor-in-chief of Consortium News, Joe Loria, or podcast host Dennis Michael Lynch. Hamilton 68 took real opinions of real Americans and falsely declared those opinions part of a Russian disinformation operation. Twitter very quickly realized that the purpose of the effort wasn't to silence Russian disinformation, but to silence Trump supporters. Twitter's then head of safety, Yoel Roth, emailed colleagues to say real people need to know they've been unilaterally labeled Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. It's a major problem. But Roth didn't win the argument. He was overruled by Twitter's director of communications, Emily Horn, who pushed back by saying that Twitter needed to be careful in pushing back against powerful D.C. interests. Twitter then went ahead and restricted the flagged accounts even though they knew that the Russian disinformation claims were false. That is how pernicious these censorship efforts are. The fact is that there is always the cloud hanging over Twitter and any other company like it, that if they don't do as they are told, there may be unwelcome repercussions coming out of Washington, D.C. In this vein, the Twitter files also revealed that the FBI played a big role in gathering and pushing social media companies to censor speech, from weekly meetings to directly asking for account takedowns. Social media companies even had to set up hidden web portals where FBI staff could flag accounts for takedown. So why did the social media companies go along with this? I'm sure one part of it is ideology, a deep dislike of Trump, 
But there's a lot of evidence in the Twitter files that Twitter executives were very concerned about being regulated and that this was something they kept a very close eye on. In short, the threat of retaliation from Washington, D.C. strongly influenced Twitter's interactions with government actors. The second example is that in 2021, the Department of Homeland Security approached social media companies to, in their own words, operationalize public-private partnerships between DHS and the social media companies. This proposed public-private partnership was about policing misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, which in government lingo is referred to as MDM. The book used by the Department of Homeland Security was that something needed to be done, this was their hook, to be done about MDM because it threatened Homeland Security which takes us right back to the slippery slope embodied in the European model of free speech, which I talked about earlier, whereby restrictions are allowed where national security or public safety and so on are threatened. The second example also illustrates the escalation. In 2017, it was merely Russian disinformation, which supposedly gave rise to free speech restrictions. By 2021, it was homeland security in general. And this takes us right back to COVID. While these censorship efforts preceded COVID, they were certainly spooled up in industrial scale during COVID. The justification for free speech restrictions becomes all of the above. Russian disinformation, foreign actors, homeland security, public safety, public health, and so on. And because the virus threat was more tangible than a Russian blogger, Few people ask questions. While Twitter's Yoel Roth was reluctant to shut down accounts on the basis of a false Russian disinformation narrative, those kinds of hurdles were no longer a problem when COVID arrived. If it was in the name of COVID, anything went. No questions asked. In fact, in some cases, the government did not even have to ask. For instance, it wasn't Anthony Fauci who reached out to Facebook. It was Facebook that reached out to Fauci. In March of 2020, one day before the 15 days to slow the spread was announced, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg emailed Fauci to propose collaboration between Fauci and Facebook on putting out what Zuckerberg called authoritative information from reliable sources. Fauci responded favorably, and so Facebook's COVID censorship regime in coordination with Fauci was born. That regime entailed not allowing false claims about the vaccines or vaccination programs, which public health experts have advised us could lead to COVID-19 vaccine rejection. And it wasn't just vaccines. Posts about hydroxychloroquine were also censored by Facebook, not because it was best practice, but because there was the government line supported by Fauci. The same happened with ivermectin. Recall that getting the mRNA vaccines approved in fast-track mode was only legally possible if there were no other treatments available. It's no wonder that the government actors like Fauci and social media giants, such as Facebook, made sure that even just talking about alternative treatments was effectively forbidden. The censorship regime grew so quickly and so wide that preeminent epidemiologists like Jay Bhattacharya, were not only silenced for their views, but called fringe epidemiologists by the head of the National Institutes of Health, no less. What was it that Bhattacharya said that got him and his colleagues that label? It was the Great Barrington Declaration, which, as we now know, and many knew back then, 
merely stated mainstream epidemiological doctrine. There was nothing fringe about it whatsoever. But the label worked, and Bhattacharya and his colleagues Martin Kulldorff and Sunetra Gupta were ostracized from the scientific community and by the media. Ironically, the Great Barrington Declaration is now widely accepted as the common-sense approach to COVID. But when it mattered, the government, the media, and social media censored any mention of it. I strongly rejected that, and I went in the other direction. I was among the first to give alternative voices a platform to be heard. And we had some experience with this from the whole Russia collusion saga, where you needed to pursue the real facts and not let the Washington, D.C. narrative stand. The same thing can be said with respect to COVID. You have to report on the stories that were being censored, and I tried. I didn't know Jay Bhattacharya personally or Martin Kulldorff, but I respected them because I did my homework. And also, think about this. During this time, YouTube was demonetizing Epic Times and a lot of people which is just another indicator of the huge toolkit that the tech giants have in controlling speech. And while I'm on the topic of YouTube, I can also share with you that if you upload rough cuts of my podcasts on YouTube as a convenient way to collect comments, those videos will get unlisted and not public, and only a few people will have access. Yet, if the videos talked about vaccines or masks or I even dared to talk about it from the pulpit of my church, YouTube would take us down, Facebook would eliminate us. Hey, it wasn't a personal censorship, it's just the algorithm, which brings us back to the First Amendment. A hundred years of American jurisprudence has maintained that in a free society, speech must be free, even if it is untruthful. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.